Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. So if somebody goes, here's a 30-day money-back trial, then that's the endowment effect because you're using it and you're, you're then sort of building it into your life and you're going, well, I don't really want to give this back. Oh, do you celebrate July the 4th in, in England? And I said, why would we celebrate a war we lost? Part of the reason this has been so influential, part of the reason it contributed to a Nobel Prize is because it is everywhere. It's, it's really, really common. So Ryan, in our garage, we have a mirror that has been there on the floor or resting against the wall for the last five years. Mm -hmm. And the reason this mirror is sitting there is because Lorraine, my wife, keeps saying, we'll sell that. And I keep going, yeah, but we're not going to get much for it, are we? And she's going, no, 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 it's a nice mirror. And I keep going no look it's been there for five years why have we not sold it before and that i believe is what we're going to be talking about today not mirrors but why lorraine has kept this mirror in there for five years is that right that's right so we are going to talk about the endowment effect but i will give you the option colin if you want we can take this discussion in a different direction and turn this into some marital advice for you <laughs> It's not worth fighting over the mirror. Let your wife have her way. It's, it's always cathartic having all of these podcasts because I feel like I just get a lot of things off my chest. Yeah. You should also know that our podcast audience, though, is pretty firmly Team Lorraine uh, on these <laughs> discussions. So, I mean, yeah. as you're trying to plan out where these things are going to go. Maybe that's not right. Yes, maybe I should just replace the name with Lorraine with somebody else. Maybe that's the best thing I do. So a friend there and their, their wife. <laughs> there you go. Well, your friend's wife is demonstrating the endowment effect. That is correct. Endowment effect, which is what we'll talk about today, incredibly important in the history of behavioral economics and understanding how people make decisions. Maybe we can start by defining it and explaining what it is. Now, we've got a long, proud history in this podcast of psychological principles and theories and effects being named very counterintuitive things. This is another example of that. This one, though, was named by an economist and not by a psychologist. So the disease is spreading. It's, oh. it's not just psychologists <laughs> who can't name things. It's just anywhere in academia, it's, is that right? Yes, it's anyone with a PhD. I'm going to start selling the marketing courses. That would be so good, wouldn't it? Eh? That would be such a good idea. They, of course, would not be interested in that at all. <laughs> but it would be an objectively good idea. So the endowment effect was named, uh, well, there were several people involved in it. I think the, the guy who gets the most individual credit is 
Richard Thaler, who won a Nobel Prize just a couple of years ago in economics, in no small part due to his work on the endowment effect. And in fact, he did a really good book called Nudge, didn't he? Yes. He, along with a, a colleague from the law school at the University of Chicago, uh, Cass Sunstein, wrote Nudge, been tremendously influential. And it's a great read. If any of our listeners haven't read it yet, it's a really, really fun, interesting book. It covers a lot of what we talk about on the podcast. So endowment is a really fancy way of referring to what you own or what is in your possession. So when we talk about the endowment effect, we're talking about how people value things that they consider to be theirs, that they own or that they possess. Okay. So when some nameless person's wife owns a mirror that she values perhaps more than, than other people might, that mirror is in her endowment. That's something that she possesses, something that she owns, something she considers hers. Good. So that's that's what the word means. It's really counterintuitive. It honestly, it took me several years before I kind of put it together and figured out because it's just such a weird word. It happens all over the place, doesn't it? You basically thinking that because it's yours, it's more valuable. Let me talk about some of the initial demonstrations of it, but you're right. Part of the reason this has been so influential, part of the reason it contributed to a Nobel Prize is because it is everywhere. It's it's really, really common. Some of the initial demonstrations of the endowment effect, and part of the reason it was so important, so influential, is because it violates some economic theory. So we're not going to go into the details, but there's something called the Coase theorem, named after this guy Coase, who I think also won a Nobel Prize. The real high-level implications of the Coase theorem are basically that markets should clear So it doesn't matter how we distribute things in a marketplace. As long as people can buy and sell, then it should all work out. And people who value the thing most should end up with it because they'll be willing to pay the most for it. And those who have something that they value less should sell it and and it should all work out. So mathematically, the Coase theorem is very sound. It makes a lot of sense. Thaler and his colleagues were less sure of it in practice, so they tested it. They created an artificial market. So in one of the initial demonstrations of the endowment effect, they took a bunch of people, in this case it was students at Cornell University, and they gave half of them a Cornell University mug. So for whatever reason, because of these initial studies, mugs are very big in the study of the endowment effects. Like <laughs> as people have replicated this and, and done extensions on it, just very big on mugs. Where mirrors are very big in our house. And I have to tell you, this mirror is literally very big. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the reason you can't get rid of it. That's right. Yeah. Not only that, is every time I look into it, I get scared. Now, see, this is <laughs> now we know what's going on. Every time your wife brings up selling it, you like try to change the the subject, and it's because you we know you sneak out to the garage sometimes so that you can flex in this full body mirror in the privacy of the garage. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the greatest customer experience guru of them all? <laughs> yeah, that, that was the, the least entertaining Disney movie ever made. So mugs, not mirrors, mugs. So they gave half the people in the class a mug, and then they created a market. They said, so if you have a mug, you can sell it to somebody else in the class. If you don't have a mug, you can buy it from somebody else in the class. Now, the Coase theorem says that on average you should expect about half the mugs to change hands. So if if we've got a 
distribution of preferences. Some people would really love a mug. Some people really don't care about mugs. And some of the people who want a mug didn't get one. Some of the people who don't care got one and said, we should be able to, to reach a, a clearing price where everybody is happy at the end of the day. And what they find in the endowment effect over and over again is that people who have the mugs value them much more. They're willing to sell them for a much higher price than people who don't have the mugs. So it's this idea that once something is in your possession, you value it a lot more and it requires more for you to give it up. And isn't this, on, on me looking into this before the podcast, isn't this also to do with like sports tickets and basically anything? So if I think about it, whenever I've had a one of the rites of passage I've always thought of living in the States is having a garage sale, which we don't really have in England. We had a garage sale there. And again, it was just, I was going, no, this is, you know, $30 and somebody's going, I'll give you two. Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you feel like they're insulting you. Yeah, this is exactly right. The endowment effect is one of the major demonstrations or implications of loss aversion, which we've we've talked about many times before. And loss aversion, this idea that uh, losing something is more painful than getting something of the same value. That's the basic idea. Like if you own a mug, then giving it up is painful. Whereas if you don't have a mug, then getting it is good, but it's not as good, right? Same with whatever you were selling in your garage sale. I assume lots of little mirrors. I, I, I'm just picturing that <laughs> your house is just littered with mirrors and then you hold a garage sale. The mirror was is actually in England and the garage sale was in the States. I could take the mirror to America. Maybe there's a market there. That's, that's the only way Lorraine would get rid of it is through a garage sale, which has to happen in the States. Don't tell Lorraine that that's an idea. Otherwise, next time, you know what? Coming back from the States once, Lorraine decided that she liked this dinner service and she put it in her luggage. Did it survive? Uh, it did. Well, the whole bloody you know. thing. But she didn't tell me. And I'm <laughs> lugging this bloody suitcase back that's full of a whole complete dinner service back from the States to our place in England. This story is only making people more team Lorraine. <laughs> like now, now they see that she's, she's brilliant too. I know. Yeah. I wonder what the clinking was. I should have gone to Cornell University and filled it full of mugs. You could have, uh, you could have sold them to a researcher and made a big profit. You're lucky that it was just China and not drugs. You're a, yeah. <laughs> you're a sucker. You're a mule. Um, it would be really easy. Yeah. A dinner service, dinner service mule. But there you go. As you were saying, this happens all over the place now. Because anything that we own, if we want to sell it, the endowment effect kicks in and we tend to overvalue it relative to somebody who doesn't own it. And this is where, so I've been thinking about this. As usual with all these things, people are doing some of this stuff or, or using some of these theories and they don't, when I say using the theories, they probably don't realize they're using the theories, but this stuff's all over the place. So for example, free trials of something. So if somebody goes, here's a 30-day money-back trial, then that's the endowment effect because you're using it and you're you're then sort of building it into your life and you're going, well, I don't really want to give this back because, again, that ties into loss aversion. So you feel like you are now giving something up because of that. Yep, you're 100% right. 
Free trials can work for a number of different reasons, but that is definitely one of them. And that's one of the psychological principles behind it. I think that for us, when we bought a new car a couple of years ago, it came with whatever, three months of free satellite radio. My wife and I were kind of neutral towards the idea of satellite radio. It wouldn't have been a big deal. But then after three months of using it, giving it up is painful. So it's exactly this thing, right? So the endowment effects kicks in. Once it's part of your endowment, you tend to value it more and it's hard to give up. And the other thing I was thinking about that sort of ties in with all of this is the whole topic that we've done before on uh, mental accounting, which basically means that you compartmentalize, I'm going to put it in layman's terms, you compartmentalize spend. And in fact, when I went into the garage the other day, I'm sorry, I'm going to bang on about this bloody mirror. And I saw the mirror again. I said to Lorraine, I said, look, there's an example of mental accounting because we had just booked a flight to the States and for the 700th time, we'd forgot to use the $150 that we'd got as a credit on our Delta account. And we're talking about selling the mirror for like $50, but it's really important that we use that. But we've just virtually thrown away this $150 that we should have been using for uh, booking a flight. So all of those things are tied in as well, aren't they? All of those things. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mental accounting was kind of the other big topic that won Dick Thaler the Nobel Prize. He was the guy who invented the term, and he did some of the early and important work on that. So yes, these things are all tied in together, along with loss aversion. So how do we measure these losses? Well, it depends on how we categorize them mentally. One important part of loss aversion is that it is at least somewhat emotional. It's an emotional reaction that losses are painful. They're, they're something that we don't like. As we're trying to like map out and figure out the endowment effect, there is a strong emotional part to it. So if you were to, to really dig in, and I'm not suggesting this, I don't think this would be good for your marriage, but if you were to really psychoanalyze Lorraine about this mirror, really set her down on the couch, and let's talk about this mirror. It may be that there's some personal connection that she has to it that is causing her to have a stronger endowment effect reaction than to you. So it's not the case that Absolutely everything we own is subject to the endowment effect. There are certain things, though, for which you wouldn't wouldn't be willing to part for any amount of money, or you really, really value it a lot. And a lot of those things are more emotional. Let Beyond Philosophy help you discover what your customers really want, not what they say they want, by uncovering the hidden drivers of value in your customer experience to create real ROI. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. Here's an interesting one, because again, I was thinking about this before the podcast. We live in Sarasota in Florida, as you're aware, and we belong to a thing called Freedom Boat Club. That sounds very American. I got to tell you, you're, you're acclimating well. <laughs> another another rite of passage. Right. Yeah. In fact, talk about rites of passage. Somebody said to me last July the 4th, they said, oh, do you celebrate July the 4th in, in England? And I said, why would we celebrate a war we lost? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Anyway. In England, it goes straight from July 3rd to July 5th, and we just, we just don't talk about it. Yeah. Correct, yeah. <laughs> So the Freedom Boat Club is basically is a so instead of buying a boat, 
you join a club each month, you pay a subscription, you pay a joining fee and a subscription, and then you can choose whatever boat you want. So if you're going fishing or whatever it may be. And it's really good for us because we don't have to then maintain the boat and everything else. However, there's always part of me that sort of goes, yeah, it's really good. It's really good that I can just sort of throw the keys at them at the end of the day and go, there you go, thanks very much. But there's this sort of bit that goes, I'd actually still like to own a boat. And it's that ownership part. But when you then do the numbers and when you then, so again, this is, I guess, intuitive and and rational system, but so this is the rational system for me. When you then do the numbers, you realize that actually it's not a good idea given all the maintenance and the cost of running the boat and blah, 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 blah. So we've never actually done that. And the Freedom Boat Club is really good. But there is still something about not having ownership, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Think about all the irrational decisions people make around buying and selling a home. It's pretty common for people who are selling a home to really overvalue their home, to think that it's worth a lot more. Some of that is the endowment effect. As you mentioned, some of it is just the emotionality of ownership. This home may be where your kids learn to walk, or you may have all of these positive memories tied up in them. And it's hard to distance yourself from that when you're trying to figure out, well, what is this worth if we were to put a price on it? Which is why I guess you have somebody independent look at it, thinking about it. It must be quite an issue for realtors then, mustn't it, really? I assume that it's a huge issue for realtors. These owners who are insisting, no, no, uh, you just don't understand. It is worth a lot more. This thing is just chock full of mirrors and buyers want that. (laughs) That does put some interesting boundaries on this. So there's a, an economist also, I believe, at the University of Chicago named List, and he's done some very interesting work on this. One of the things he's done is he's gone to baseball card conventions, so these places where people buy and sell and trade baseball cards. So he'll usually he'll buy a booth, and then he'll buy and sell trading cards under various experimental conditions to kind of see how people react to it. And one of the things that he's done, and and the reason he likes going to these conventions is because you have two kinds of people who attend these conventions. You have hobbyists, enthusiasts, and then you also have professional buyers and sellers. The endowment effect is much, much stronger for one of these groups than the other. You want to take a guess as to which? I would hazard us a guess that it's the person that owns it personally. That's right. And yeah. not looking at the professional side of things. That's exactly it, right? So it's these these hobbyists, these enthusiasts who any of us who have collected anything as a hobby know you get very emotionally invested in these things that you're collecting and you you can't, you know, it's the first one of these that you've gotten and, and it becomes part of your story. And so the idea of selling that is painful. Now, sometimes people will still sell it, right? Enthusiast, hobbyist, card collectors will sometimes sell cards as a way of partially financing their hobby. So they'll sell it so they can buy more cards, but it's still kind of painful. And so they will tend to want much more. Whereas these investors, essentially, these people who do it professionally, much less emotion involved and so much lower loss aversion and therefore much lower endowment effect. So when it comes to, so it's interesting because as you're saying that, I'm thinking about some of the implications of this to organizations, okay? The same has got to happen with ideas, hasn't it? That's interesting. What do you have in mind? Here's my idea. Therefore, I'm endowed, to use the academic phrase, the endowment effect is taking over here 
and therefore my idea is really key. It's actually interesting just building on that. When we do journey mapping as part of our process when we are redesigning an experience, one of the things that we do when we do journey mapping is that we get lots and lots of people involved, okay? One of the phrases I, I always love is, none of us are as clever as all of us. We would have, for each of the stages of the journey, a piece of brown paper. And anyway, long and short of it is people come along and they put their ideas on it, okay? Here's step one. Here's some of the problems. Okay, what ideas have you got to resolve this? The point being, we find it amazing how people are so interested to see whether their idea gets through the cut. So one of the problems that we face is we can generate so many ideas. I mean, you can get literally 500 different ideas, some big, some small. But one of the problems you then get is which ones do you want to do? So we've got a very left brain rational process to go. How much will it improve the experience? How much revenue are you going to gain from it? What's the cost? What's the timescales? Usual things, as it were. People are really interested to see if their idea has got through or not. So I guess that's part of endowment effect, mustn't it? That must be. It pushes it a little bit, especially if the idea requires some form of loss. So if people view this through this competitive lens where if your idea gets chosen, then that means that I'm kind of like giving up on my idea, then yeah, I think that we could look at it through an endowment effect frame where gaining praise for your idea is good, but losing out on this idea that you've become attached to is is much more painful. I think if you just broadened the subject and just talked about it being in endowment or something that is yours and you value things that are yours much more than other people value those things. And that's the core idea. Totally, totally. Given that, and in fact, as I just about to do this, let me remind people that we have started to do a podcast summary. So one of our listeners said that they travel to work, they listen to the podcast on the way into work, and they didn't have the ability to, to write it down as they were driving in. And therefore, was there any chance of us doing some form of summary, which we've now started to do? Therefore, you can download this summary, by the way, by going to beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. And we have in it, in the podcast summary, it's basically the key takeaways. And the reason I remembered that just to mention it now was because we also do the recommended actions. So what are the things that you should do? So Ryan, let's get into that bit now. What are the key things that people should start to do as a result of this endowment effect? So I would recommend understanding the strong emotional drivers surrounding ownership, extending a little bit beyond the strict endowment effect stuff. There's been research showing that this affects disposal. So whether people are willing to sell something or donate it or throw it away, depends very much on how connected they feel to it. So kind of how much it's in their endowment. When I was in graduate school, my wife and I worked at a 
rental storage place. It was the kind of place where they wanted somebody to live on site. So they had an apartment above the office so that we could lock up the gate and so on. And it was amazing. We got to observe how people interacted with this service. It was amazing how often people would store a bunch of stuff in the storage unit for one year or two years and then come back, empty it all out and immediately throw it away. (laughs) I think that this is a kind of a form of endowment. I suspect, and we talked to a few of the people who did this, but I suspect that oftentimes people would like inherit a bunch of grandma's furniture when she passed or they were renovating their house and so they put a lot of their old possessions in there things that they they felt a very strong connection to with some time and some distance that those emotions cooled they were able to gain some distance from this stuff and at that point then it was emotionally okay for them to throw that stuff away they paid a lot of money to this rental storage place for that emotional distance. This can be a really powerful driver. So are you taking that into account? Are you asking people to give up something that they own? Are you giving them opportunities to feel like something is in their possession? Remember that these endowment effect studies were conducted on giving people mugs and letting them hold them for about a minute before they engage the study. So it doesn't take a lot, but this ownership idea is very, very powerful. How is that playing into your strategies? That is such a great idea. You know what I'm going to do now? Oh, no. I'm going to go and go to one of those storage places, and I'm going to put Lorraine's mirror in there. (laughs) (laughs) In a year's time, she'll go back and go, why Why do I want that? My experience says that might work. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what, these podcasts are bloody useful for sorting out my marriage. They're really good. My advice would be two or three things recognize the fact that because it's yours if you're trying to sell something recognize the fact that you are likely to overprice it okay and again if you took the sort of the sentiment of the endowment effect i guess that could even work to how much you you charge for your daily rate or whatever that may be and even i guess thinking about it how much people think they're worth from a salary perspective and whether they're looking for new jobs and stuff like that although I'm extending the theory a bit, I guess. From a more practical customer experience perspective, you need to consider giving people trials of things. We've talked about a a number of places where they're doing that now. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, even going into a clothing store and trying on a suit or a pair of uh, pants or whatever it may be, you start to look at them and go, "Mm, yeah, that's like these look quite good. And that's where things come in. So think about trials, think about giving it to somebody because again, a loss aversion endowment effect comes into, into play. But also from the other side of things, as we move into this subscription economy, give some thought to my example about Freedom Boat Club, which is there's some emotional part about owning something. And either how do you overcome that or how do you appeal to the more rational side of people's brains so we referred to i referred to intuitive and rational for those people that have listened to this podcast and have read run my book called the intuitive customer you'll know that there are two systems that we make decisions with rational is more 
the logical, rational system of why we should be doing that. The point I'm making is, therefore, if you know that actually people are going to feel a bit that they should own something, then actually you should be perhaps making more of a play on the rational side of things. So the rational side overrules the intuitive side. But I think that this happens all over the place and is a general theory and therefore definitely give some thought to how can you position this And I guess even tying into, Ryan, what we've talked about before in another podcast about framing and framing effects and how can you frame the offer that you've got, et cetera, et cetera. So, good. Okay. Well, thanks very much uh, for listening, everybody. Please don't forget the podcast summary. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. You can download there the key takeaways and recommended actions, and then you can spread it around the organization. It's also a very good way to study for a test on this podcast. If you're in high school and your teacher is giving you tests on our podcast, which I assume is happening now, (laughs) it's a very efficient way to study for the test. Excellent. I wondered if I'd pass or not, but probably not. But there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. See you next week, everybody. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.